This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the Anglican Church of Canada at a conference voted against authorizing same-sex marriages. The Anglican Diocese of Niagara, however, has decided to allow marriage to everyone. Is religion truly inclusive? To talk more about all of this, Right Reverend Michael Bird is with us, Bishop of Niagara, Anglican Diocese of Niagara, and with us now. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Uh, very good. Thank you, uh, Scott, uh, for your, the opportunity to be on your show today. Thank you very much, Reverend, for joining us. We certainly do appreciate this. First of all, uh, uh, you, you're talking about in the Anglican Diocese of Niagara decided to allow marriage for everyone. Uh, what's the difference between your point of view and what we see coming down from the Anglican Church of Canada? <clears throat> well, the Anglican Church across Canada has a wide breadth of tradition and, I would say, a theology and reading of Scripture. And while that's a, a wonderful blessing uh, in many ways, it makes making these kinds of decisions more difficult. Um, we, What's lost, and I think uh, what happened last night was that, in fact, um, there was a strong majority in favor, but... Uh, uh, our uh, church government is such that our canon state, we, we need a two-thirds majority from every group voting, lay people, clergy, and bishops, and it was uh, reached in two of the, the groups, uh, the laity and the bishops, but not in amongst the clergy. So, And it really, at the end of the day, we it was one vote short, so it was incredibly... Uh, disappointing and um, I know it was very it's going to be very hurtful for a number of our LGBTQ2 um, community um, but that's why I've uh, made the decision to use the discretion I believe that the canons afford me to um, to allow uh, this to, to go forward in my diocese on a pastoral basis and um, and I hope that that sends a very strong signal that our church is um, believes uh, the majority, and I certainly, and people in the Diocese of Niagara believe that um, the LGBTQ2 members are full um, children of God, and uh, we want them to have um, all the um, access to our sacraments. And uh, so we're moving forward with that. Uh, any sort of feedback from the Anglican Church of Canada on this? Are you expecting any repercussions of, of any kind? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I I know that what I have received so far is uh, just we've been flooded with um, uh, messages of support uh, from people both within the Church and outside the Church. And I know that some people will uh, find my decision difficult and... Um, how they will express that, I'm not sure, but um, I, we're a, a church, I think, that um, tries to walk together and uh, in all kinds of ways, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to do this in this instance as well, but we'll, we'll have to see. What kind of feedback are you getting for your position on all of this? Um, I've just, I, I, I've had, I, I'm sure we've had a hundred or more emails um, uh, from uh, people from the LGBTQ community, their families, um, their their parish families, um, expressing um, strong support and gratitude for 
the stand that I've taken, and um, I, I, I hope that that's uh, going to continue to be the case, that people see just how um, important they are to the life of our church in, uh, in Hamilton and uh, in, across the Diocese of Niagara. They are um, valued members of our church. They are um, on all our boards. They, uh, they participate fully, and, and now in the Diocese of Niagara, they will have full access to everything the Church has to offer them, and I, I, I'm so grateful that we're able to do that for them. Are you receiving any negative feedback for your position? I, I haven't uh, at this point. I, I anticipate that I will. Um, um, some people will, um, you know, put forward a, a very different um, view of scripture that um than I have and um and will um I probably will get some some angry messages but um so far as I say it's just been overwhelmingly positive are there any other dioceses that are uh jumping on board with you and supporting you yes the diocese of ottawa has made a strong um statement of uh, moving forward um, other diocese, about three or four other dioceses have also indicated um, their desire to move forward uh, at some point soon, and um, so it's. I'm gratified that I'm not alone in this, and that in fact, actually, I think um, what will happen is that people will see that that there that the, the Anglican Church is um, very much um, desirous to move forward. Uh, possible. With this being such a close vote, are you surprised with the outcome? Um, I was. There was a there was a thought at one point that the bishops um, would uh, might uh, not provide um, support, but in fact, uh, that was not the case. Um, and um, we knew that it would be um, a close vote, um, and uh, but we were hoping that there. There was uh, that that it would pass. Um, so I, I wasn't completely shocked, um, but for it to be so close was 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 very disappointing and, and heartbreaking. Actually, the split of the vote, as you mentioned, uh, bishops and lay delegates for uh, blessing uh, uh, gay marriages, uh, but the clergy not. How do you explain that? Um, I think it's going to take us some time to really, one of the things that we're committed to do going out of this is to actually explore this further. Um, we're, we're hoping to have some conversations, deep conversations, in the coming months um, to really get to the root of what, what that vote means. But um, as I say, it's, it's a, a church that has, um, a, it is what we call a, the Big Tent Church. It, it, um, it's, we've been able to hold together people from uh, a variety of traditions and um, theologies, and it, it, and that's true not just of um, uh, Canada, but uh, we are uh, members of a worldwide Anglican communion of 87 million Anglicans. So, um, because of that, um, it, 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 it can be um, a challenge. But we're we're open to the challenge, and I and a number of the bishops, Canadian bishops, 
are certainly going to be working very hard to uh, get uh, to, to have those dialogues and to, to keep pushing forward with this. How significant is this vote? How significant is this? Well, I think it's um, there's two things. I think that first of all, um, it's devastating and to many people and um, very, very disappointing and heartbreaking uh, because we wanted to get we wanted to send that positive message to um, the wider uh, society. Um, on the other hand, um, the the church is uh, has a majority of its members that are in favor of this. That the vote made that very clear. And um, I think that probably uh, what it says is it gives bishops like me um, the mandate to um, exercise that um, pastoral discretion um, and to allow that to happen where uh, where it's possible. And so I think um, it's at the end of the day we'll see this as a moment in time that the church is uh, making a strong forward. Are you concerned that some may leave the church? Others may say that if the vote had gone the other way, people would leave the church. How do you, exactly. balance, how do you, how do you balance this? Well, I think the only way that I... I mean, this is not new for us or for me. We've, um, we've had to um, deal with this for, for many, many years. And the, the the best way for me to 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 deal with this is to meet people face to face. I had the privilege of um, being guest preacher at a queer Eucharist in Toronto a few months ago, and we sat for hours afterwards and had questions and answers. And I tried to the best of my ability to express to the members of the community how. Uh, deeply, I and and many many others in the church uh, care about them. Are are how much we regret the way the church has let them down um, in the past, and um, that we see them as children of God, made in the image of God, um, just as uh, in the same way that we all are. And um, so, in those sort of face to face conversations, I think. People get a chance. I, I get a chance to hear their stories, to understand the, the deep uh, hurt and pain that they have had to live with for a long time, and that just energizes me more and inspires me more to um, to, to keep working away at this. And so, and that that's really at the root of the decision I've made um, at this time. The Right Reverend Michael Byrd has been with us, Bishop of Niagara, Anglican Diocese of Niagara, the Anglican Church of Canada at a conference voted against authorizing same-sex marriages. The Anglican Diocese of Niagara, however, has decided to allow marriage uh, for everyone. Reverend, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and thank you for your courage as well. Scott, thank you. It's great to be with you today, and um, I thank you very much for the opportunity. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we've talked on this show, uh, man, I can't even count the times, about electricity prices and how they have taken off. Uh, Residents of rural Ontario are outraged by ever-increasing hydro bills. Uh, This out of Global News in Toronto, Hydro Horror Stories, Tales from Rural Ontario. Uh, They talk about increasing bills and threats of disconnection. 
Uh, facing an unresponsive utility provider, Hydro One customers from across the province are speaking out. In the past three days alone, Global News has received more than 400 emails and messages from concerned Ontarians frustrated by the lack of government transparency and the apparent disregard with which industry regulators treat their concerns. In their own words, uh, here's just some of the messages that Global News got in regard to electricity prices. 400 emails and messages in the last three days alone. Uh, Lindsay in Sault Ste. Marie says, My husband and I have four children, one with autism. We have learned to eat only using $200 a month. Two of our children are in diapers. Imagine the cost. We get the disconnection notice every month, and we are approximately $1,000 behind. I feel that we, uh, I, I feel as though we work just to pay uh, PUC. This is ridiculous. Uh, Matt from Peterborough says, uh, I live just outside of Peterborough, and I'm in, uh, greatly impacted by the costs of hydro. My bills are over 600 bucks a month. I've seen them as high as 1000 uh, uh, Seagrave, Ontario. My husband and I have had massive strokes uh, five years ago. I'm his only caregiver. Uh, and, of course, uh, have little income. My bill, my bill for last month was $800. We are seniors on a fixed income. Andre from Sutton, Ontario. We're ready to be shut off over a $588 bill. We live north of Toronto in a small town. We haven't been able to pay our bill for two months. Uh, had the cutoff letter last week. They go on, they go on, they go on. Um, another one out of Dufferin, Ontario. In the three years since my husband passed away, I've paid approximately $20,000 in electricity for our cottage. This winter, we shut off everything with the exception of one baseboard heater, uh, so not to freeze the hot water heater. Our energy usage was two ninety four for the month of January uh, to March, three months. Our delivery charges are $986. The bill's totaling $1,300. It's up for sale now. I uh, live in Dufferin County. Uh, County Been struggling to pay my hydro bill for the last four years. Average $400 a month, $650 in the winter. We sit in the dark uh, most of the days and use candlelight. Uh, Azilda, Ontario. I pay $660 a month in hydro on equal billing. My bill keeps increasing. I'm so stressed about it. I have been working more and spending less time with my kids just to pay my hydro bill. Uh, another one out of Bob Cajun. We owe $4,000. And even paying them $500 a month, it still keeps adding up. Uh, we bought our house three years ago. Since then, Hydro One has taken every penny we have, including our son's education fund. We can't keep up and are waiting any day for them to cut us off. And it goes on and goes on and goes on. And it seems that they've received about 400 of these in the last three days alone. To talk more about all of this, Shirley Engel is with us, Global National Ottawa correspondent and on the line with us now. Hi, Shirley. How are you today? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Why do you think you're getting so many calls in the last few days on this? I think it's because these stories have really struck a chord with people in rural Ontario. Uh, we have heard, and I, you just went through many of them, uh, stories about people who are sick, people who have uh, children with special needs, people who are seniors, people who are on fixed incomes, on disability. Uh, all of these people telling us that they're having trouble paying their bills. And, you know, this began as, as something anecdotal that our Jacques Bourbeau heard about. He, he is a resident uh, part of the year in rural Ontario, and, and he heard a lot about this. And it seems it's one of those issues that has been in 
uh, an irritant for people for a long time, but they really haven't had an outlet to express how they really feel and how bad things really are. Uh, they do try to reach out to Hydro One. They have reached out to government, but don't feel that they're really getting any help. And once we ran those stories, I think it really struck a chord with people and they realized finally uh, our stories are getting out and people are starting to listen. You bring up an interesting point, and, and I noticed this talking to business people in cottage country uh, last summer. And uh, near where I am, there's a, a small diner motel kind of establishment. And, you know, it's, it's it does a fair business. Uh, but the new owners were complaining that they were going bankrupt and they were going to have to sell. And it wasn't because of demand. It wasn't because of the dollar or this, that, or the other. It was because they couldn't afford their hydro bill. And I think what a lot of people don't realize, especially in the GTA or in, you know, if you're close to a large center, is uh, most of us get our heating and, and such from natural gas. Uh, and electricity is really for the lights and, and perhaps an AC, whereas in rural Ontario, they don't have that option. They're relying solely on electricity, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, they don't, and I mean, a lot of them, to be fair, rely on electricity, but especially since the prices have started going up so much, they, they try to do other things. I mean, we heard constantly from people who say, it's not the consumption aspect of my bill that's the problem. They are not using their dryers. They're hanging their clothes outside. They're not using appliances until after 7 p.m. They're going to bed early, so they don't have to use the lights. They're turning off the breakers as soon as the coffee starts stops dripping. So a lot of these people are people who use as little power as they possibly can. They get told by some of the organizations that are, are helping financially, look, you got to reduce your consumption, and they're doing all they can, uh, basically have weaned themselves as much as they can off of electricity and are still seeing these sky-high bills because the delivery costs are high in rural Ontario. The argument being, look, there are fewer people spread out across a greater area, so the delivery costs have got to be higher. Uh, but the irony of, of living in a place where you can see the power generation plant across the way uh, and realizing how much you spend on delivery charges as opposed to someone mm. who lives in the city who pays much less, uh, it's quite upsetting to people. Uh, obviously, uh, the Ontario government has said in the past that they were going to try to alleviate this and, and even trying to extend natural gas to a lot of these remote places, which is kind of odd considering it wasn't that long ago we heard a report, a leaked report, that said that they were going to or trying to uh, you know, get rid of natural gas uh, within the next uh, 30 years or so. Is there any sort of or have you heard any kind of help for these people? As a matter of fact, there are programs. I mean, to be fair, uh, there have been a number of programs over the years to try to help low-income people who have trouble meeting their bills. Uh, there, there are several of them, depending on where you live. Some of the charities, the United Ways in various communities, have programs where you can apply, and they do help people. They give people a certain amount of money to help uh, offset their bills. Um, there is a new program in Ontario that, that has just started that is going to help people possibly up to $1,000 a year on their bills. So there definitely is help for people who are on a low income. And I know that the province is really eager to get that message out that, look, you don't have to, to just try to meet these bills on your own. There is assistance. But the reality is that assistance can only go so far. And even if people max out the amount that they can get 
a lot of people are telling us they're still not able to meet those bills, even with those programs that exist. And the other thing that's worth noting is we don't have a sense of whether these programs are actually helping. We know anecdotally that in places like United Way of Bruce Gray, they saw a 20% increase in, in people looking. Uh, they had more than 200 people asking for assistance since January alone, and they only have so many dollars in that fund, and they just can't to keep up with the demand. So, yes, there, there are programs available, but they're still not quite meeting that enormous demand that there is for relief. And, you know, again, a lot of the time the demand, uh, or sorry, the programs help uh, lower-income people, which is great, but there's a lot of people who live in rural Ontario that don't necessarily fall into that category that are finding their... Uh, their payments going up as well. So, it, you know, as well as affecting the ones at the lower end of the scale, it's affecting everybody. Yeah, and that's really the untold story because, you know, you think, oh, well, I'm sorry that you can't, you know, turn the lights on at your cottage, for instance. Yeah. Some of these people are occasional rural residents. They have properties that are not their primary residences. But uh, I'm not sure if you read the, the bit from a woman who said that her husband had recently passed away. They had this cottage. It had been in the family for for years and years, and that she's at the point where she's having to sell because, you know, she they just can't meet the bills. And there, there's an emotional aspect to that of, you know, this isn't just some luxury that they have. This is a family cottage that has been in the family for years that her late husband was quite fond of. So, so these are very emotional things for people. The other thing you have to remember is, is just because you're not low income, it doesn't mean that uh, you don't have trouble paying the bills. Right. We heard a lot of families that are maybe not necessarily qualifying as low income, but they're trying to make feed a family of six, for instance, on $200 a month. And anybody who's been to a grocery store in Ontario recently knows that that's, that's really difficult to do if you want to eat well. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people maybe don't qualify for these types of assistance and maybe hear the message of, well, you know, you chose to live in rural Ontario, that this is how it goes. Um, but, you know, for those families, this is their home. And, you know, there aren't just uh, financial aspects to it. There are also emotional and even in some cases mental health aspects to it. Um, difficulty paying bills, a lot of people have been saying anecdotally about you know, this is affecting their health, that there have been some admissions for, for mental health conditions. So this is, is really more than just an economic issue. It's also becoming a, a social issue as well. Any response from government on this? Well, we've been hammering them for, for a while now, just trying to get some more information. One thing we've been promised is, is potentially we know now that the statistics do exist on the number of disconnections, which is something we've been asking for from, uh, from the province, from the OED, the Energy Board. Uh, now we know those stats do exist. We're waiting on whether those can be released publicly. So we're certainly uh, trying to get more in terms of the statistics. Keep in mind, the energy minister, Glenn Thibault, in Ontario, has only been on the job for about a month. So he's got a lot of catching up to do. He is himself from a northern community, uh, and he, he is very much committed to trying to do something about this issue and does mention you know, some of the programs that are available uh, but, of course, he's got a lot of homework to do before he's completely up to speed on this issue. And part of that homework will probably be sifting through his department to try and find out how much they really do know about this and, and how much in terms of statistics and evidence there really is. Because we certainly haven't seen that yet in our reporting. Uh, elaborate a little bit more on that. Is it difficult or has it been up to this time to get any sort of uh, factual data on disconnection rates? It's been impossible. We have not been provided that data. At first, uh, we were told Hydro One would not just, would not release it. Um, you know, they are now becoming privatized, so there's less and less that the province can do in terms of, of having them uh, accountable. 
Uh, so Hydro One won't give us that information. The Ontario Energy Board uh, at first wouldn't give it to us either. And now, as I said, we're told, actually, we can get that information. It's just a matter of whether they can release that information publicly. Uh, the information we don't know uh, if, if it really exists in a form that we can digest is, as I said, whether these programs for low-income people who are accessing this funding, whether those programs are having an effect, whether they're uh, leading to a reduction in the disconnections, a uh, reduction in people who are going into arrears. That certainly would be data that would really paint a more accurate picture about the extent of the problem because, as I said, we've had a lot of anecdotal um, evidence of this being a huge problem, hundreds of emails in our inbox calls, people we've interviewed, but we certainly don't have any kind of hard data as to the extent of the problem, uh, how many families are suffering and how many families need help and whether those that are getting help are actually able to wean themselves off of that help and, and get back on their feet. Yeah, it just seems to be a sort of a Band-Aid solution at this point, doesn't it? Well, I've, really, it's a matter of, you know, can people continue living in rural Ontario? We did hear from some people who said, it, and rates are going to go up. That's the reality. They always do, or they mm -hmm. continue to. It's just a matter of how much they'll go up. So, you know, we're at a point where there are some people who are really looking long and hard at maybe I can't afford to continue living here. Why not release the, the information on disconnection rates and such? It's not like they're releasing people's pro, uh, public or, sorry, private information. It's not like they're releasing names. What's the harm in doing that? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I haven't had an answer to that question. Not releasing information generally leads to speculation about not wanting to release it, which leads to the question of, is there something being hidden? Is it maybe that they don't want us to know how many disconnections there are? It is something that certainly seems pretty innocuous to, to release. I mean, you must have that data. Why don't you just release it publicly? That's a case we've made to the OEB and, and to the minister's office. Um, we're told that they are working on it. Uh, whether we will indeed see numbers, we, we don't know. We hope to see numbers to be able to uh, put a little bit more hard data uh, behind this. We've certainly heard lots of people in the cities and in urban areas complain and bark about how their uh, electricity rates are going up. Uh, the government doesn't seem to react too much you know, to that other than these programs, I guess, from lower income people. Uh, do you think they're going to listen to those in rural Ontario if they don't listen to the rest of us? You know, I really don't know. Uh, I know that uh, the minister involved says this is a, an issue that he cares very deeply about. So, you know, at this point, let's, let's take him at his word and see what he does. Uh, new minister in, in a new portfolio uh, with presumably a little more understanding of some of the hardships in northern Ontario. So uh, we can only wait and see what the government does about this. Uh, certainly the more people that speak up, remember, these are all voters. Mm. Uh, and, and generally, governments do care what voters think. Um, what they do about it, we, we don't know. We can only keep telling stories and, and raising the issue and, and asking questions and, and seeing if that uh, leads to any change at all. As you mentioned earlier, it seems because these people live in uh, rural areas, there's not a lot of them or they're not certainly well organized and, and, and don't necessarily have their vo voices front and center the way some might in, in more built up areas. Is this rural movement growing, do you think? I don't know, uh, but I do know that we are hearing from more and more people, so I'm not sure whether they're organized. I know certainly on social media, our stories have been shared very widely, and that's why a lot of people are reaching out to us, 
they, they see our stories posted on Facebook, they see them linked on Twitter, and, and they, they say, hey, wait a second, I'm going through that too. My bill was pretty crazy, and they weigh in. And, you know, we've seen with social media that it has given people an ability to organize and, and speak up in a way that they couldn't before. So uh, I'm not sure uh, whether they're organizing um, more officially, but definitely I think people hearing the stories and, and having an outlet to be able to express themselves and to be able to, to be heard, uh, definitely social media offers them that opportunity. And we would encourage people to keep reaching out to Global News on this uh, so we can continue telling the stories and, and asking the questions. Uh, it seems like uh, from the majority of what I'm reading here anyway on some of the examples you've provided in your press release that uh, most of these scenarios are residential. Have you heard from businesses at all? Absolutely. There are businesses involved. Um, just in terms of, of uh, an anecdote, our Jacques Bourbeau was saying he, he was at one of the local stores and they said, you know, years ago the discussions were about politics and other issues and now the main topic people want to talk about is the hydro rate. So we know anecdotally that people are, are hurting, uh, that businesses are having difficulties. Um, we know even from some of the charities that businesses have been reaching out saying, look, you know, it's having it's it's getting more and more difficult to run the business. On Twitter, I had one woman reaching out to me this morning saying, "Running a business in rural Ontario is very difficult as well." Um, so definitely, this is not a problem that is just restricted to residents. Uh, have you any sort of plan to take it beyond this? I mean, is there anything these people can do? Well, people can continue to to speak up. As I said, they can they can go on social media. They can uh, talk to other people in rural Ontario. They can reach out to their local MPP. They can reach out to the premier herself. Uh, they can exercise their rights in this democracy, which is to speak up and contact their politicians and let them know what their opinions are and let them know that there's hardship. Um, really, the more that people speak up about this, the more the government will have no choice but to listen. Uh, they can also call Hydro One. We got some news today that Hydro One has actually appointed a customer service person, someone who came from WestJet, who's going to whose job it is to actually hear from Hydro One customers. So that's a sign that Hydro One itself uh, knows that that it needs to do a better job with customer service. And uh, the question will be raised: Will this person be able to to help people who say they call Hydro One and don't get any help from the company? So certainly it's something that we've seen the company itself signal today uh, they are taking seriously, and uh, we'll see if that makes any difference. Hard to, believe, hard to believe that they don't already have somebody doing that. You would think well, there would be enough demand. Well, they had people doing customer service, but in terms of appointing uh, you know, WestJet president to, to do this, yeah. um, that's definitely uh, a step, I would say, uh, says a lot about how seriously Hydro One is taking this and how maybe perhaps up until now their customer service obviously has been lacking if they'd like to put someone like this in place. And we certainly have heard that from from customers who have told us, you know, we've tried to follow up with them. We've pleaded with them. Please don't disconnect me. Uh, so obviously it's something that the company itself is starting to, to take very seriously, if not already. Shirley Engel has been with us, Global National Ottawa correspondent. Be sure to watch Global News tonight for more on this. Uh, Ontario, uh, northern Ontario, uh, lots of stories about hydro rates and uh, these people literally being devastated as it, this, this is their only source of energy in many cases uh, to power their homes. Shirley, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we're excited to have a brand new police chief for Hamilton Police Service, Eric Gert, with us. He, of course, uh, replacing uh, retiring Glenn DeCare, and Eric is with us now. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me on board, Scott. First, congratulations. Thank you very much. I remember we were all sitting around uh, the same table at uh, Police Chief Glenn DeCare's, former Police Chief Glenn DeCare's retirement dinner, and you were there amongst others, and uh, we had quite an interesting chat. So it's it's interesting to see you go from deputy uh, to police chief. Is there much difference in the two jobs? I mean, you were a deputy for so long. I mean, is it, are you pretty much not doing the gig anyway? No, there's a lot of crossovers, you know, but there are some fundamental changes, and one is you become more of the face of the organization. Certainly the media portion has expanded, and I, I'm not surprised at that. And uh, it's an important part, too, though, right, is uh, the public getting to know us, what our positions are, uh, what our commentary is. So, you know, this is an excellent venue to do that. Uh, but also it's kind of scope of things because uh, obviously community relations are a huge portion of it. Our relationship building both with the external community, our other partners, whether they're formal organizations, uh, ethno-cultural groups, um, long-standing um, relationships with a number of groups across the city. So it just puts you in a different position. But I've been involved with much of that through the course of my career and as a senior officer and as a deputy. So there's a certain continuity, but there are changes. Uh, more operational in the old job? Uh, definitely as uh, community policing, which is the operations side of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have the three patrol divisions, investigative services, and community mobilization. And you were also the contact for any duty officers. So whether you get into SIUs or major incidents, then you're the, you're the contact for uh, the deployment of resources there. When we were chatting at uh, the retirement dinner, we were talking a lot because it w- obviously the case was still in court in regard to the Tim Bosma murder trial. <laughs> and just the fascinating police work that was done in order to to, to get a conviction uh, in that case. With a case of this size, how much does it draw on your resources of a city police service? Well, and you raise an excellent point. This was probably one of the largest cases we've had because keep in mind, and, and some people forget, and, I mean, we were hoping for a positive outcome on the missing person case. Mm-hmm. So we structured uh, searches with a number of other agencies, including Waterloo, Brantford, Guelph. They came down to assist us in the first instance. And then obviously through the course of investigation, because we look at any missing person investigation as a potential criminal investigation. So we're certainly alive to that issue. Quickly changed into a homicide investigation, or at least a suspicious you know, disappearance, mm-hmm. which of course then changed into a multi-jurisdictional major case where you had the event happen in Brantford, the homicide. You had um, uh, various evidence in Waterloo, out in New York, um, that had to all be contained and um, handled right up front, again, with multi-jurisdictions involved. We had tremendous support, both from the OPP and all the adjacent police services, and we work in concert that way. So when you talk about resources, it was huge, but you can see the impact on the heinous nature of the crime because uh, of the nature of, you know, Tim is basically selling a truck. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of us can see ourselves yeah. in that position, and, you know, he's not involved in criminality, he's not involved in drugs, he's not involved in other things. Not that that means anybody should be killed, I don't mean that. But, I mean, it's, it's the yeah. random nature of it. And then you, as things were disclosed with an eliminator and everything else, made your hair stand up. Yeah. 
Uh, you talked about the police services working together. There was a time when maybe they didn't do so as much. Talk a little bit more about that and how you do work and break down those yeah. silos. Well, really, that's agencies. the Bernardo case, and that's yeah. the Campbell Commission report. Uh, Chief Justice Campbell then did a, a review of that, and part of it was sharing of information between services on other cases. But the major case management system stemmed out of that, the ability to work in concert and as you know the OPP was actually the major case management uh, multi-jurisdictional uh, lead it was mm-hmm. Dave, Dave Hillman with the OPP and he's still got a couple of cases um, now mm-hmm. he's got a plateful there but you have to interconnect between all those services who are doing a whole variety of things it's quite a demanding portfolio the training to get there usually you have to have been through either homicide or major cases and then you get selected by your peers to assume that position for a multi-case manager uh, for cross-jurisdictional cases. So it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, you got to do it right. And in my opinion, you know, post-analysis, I think we saw by virtue of the trial how it happened. Quite frankly, the police did not face a lot of criticism. Um, And you certainly know that a defense counsel, if they thought there were Mm, gaps, would exploit them. We just really didn't hear that. What we heard was the evidence come forward. You saw the complexity of the case. You saw the role of technology now today, whether it was video, cell phone use, all the things across, again, many, many sites, including rural roads where you wouldn't think, Mm -hmm. gee, I didn't know there was a video camera there. Well, it could be private citizens. So to get all that evidence in the first place, sort through it, work with all the other jurisdictions, really required a concerted effort. We had a great team from uh, the Crowns prosecuting that matter. And uh, I know it's up for appeal, but uh, we saw, in my view, a positive outcome uh, of a first-degree conviction with, you know, mandatory life sentence. Uh, We'll see what happens with the appeal, but um, I think what you saw was a very, very full case that, even for me, and I knew aspects of the case, when you saw the stuff coming out, you went, wow, this is really complicated to integrate all this stuff, to present it in a manner that the common person, which is the jurist, can understand and get whether it's DNA analysis or, you know, trace evidence. Um, Especially you have two suspects on the stand at the same time. Well, and that was part of the intrigue in yeah. a sense, as with any murder case where you get two people who are accused, are they going to speak or not? Yeah. And if they do, they point the finger elsewhere. Yeah. And then if they do, what does that generate both for the Crown and the questioning and all that stuff? So it was, it was a really riveting mm-hmm. case, but I think it's because it was so heinous, the nature of the crime, uh, that really drew the attention. I uh, have to ask you about the headline today, uh, convicted Hamilton officer resigns. What can you tell us? What can't you tell us? Yeah, so currently we know that uh, uh, that officer's been convicted in the criminal courts and that's under appeal. I can't comment relative to the Police Service Act case. It's not a question of wanting to or not, um, and it's it, it'll sound odd, but when we designate a hearing officer, that hearing officer takes the place of the chief. So it would sound like one of those altered universe discussions where I say to, if the hearing officer talks to me mm-hmm. about the case, I say, I can't talk to you about it mm-hmm. or vice versa because right. I'm you. And that's where I say it kind of sounds odd, but yeah. that's the case. You can only have one person adjudicating on that matter, which is the hearing officer once they're designated. And I am a hearing officer and have been. Mm-hmm. So I understand the mechanics of that. So I can't speak to it. Um, it is an employer-employer relationship in terms of the Police Service Act. The maximum penalty you get is dismissal. Mm-hmm. Uh, criminal court's a little different. Yeah. You can lose your liberty and fines and all kinds of other things. All right. Uh, lots of uh, um, coverage of what's been happening in the United States over the last couple of weeks. 
uh, and there just seems to be an attack on police. I know that's America. It's a completely different country and, and culture than what we have up here. That being said, it seems to be coming across the border, at least the attitude does. Do you, do you guys and girls hear that? Do you feel that? Do you feel that you still have the support of the people? Uh, I'll go to your last comment first. I do believe we have the support of the people. I also believe our context is different. It's, we're not a monolithic organization, either in policing or Canadian culture versus American culture, even the variation between cities. Got to take that into account. Yeah. Because if you're talking about <clears throat> you know, a remote city in Quebec, your composition is going to be a little different than Toronto or Hamilton, which are major metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Hamilton is different than Toronto in terms of the composition. I think what's important is we're trying to expand both through our hiring practices and our interactions. We're trying to expand on cultural competency. So it's not just visible diversity. It's about cultural competency. So that can mean religions, number of languages you speak. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. As uh, you know, the Syrian refugees came into the city, we made a concerted effort to go out and meet with them with a, a translator. Mm-hmm. And that sets them at ease because they're hearing it in their language and not, you know, on a written card, but they're hearing somebody speak. Yeah. Um, and that was an RCMP officer we employed. And then we said, okay, these are the basic things you can expect from policing. Then we would move up to, okay, this is the cultural norms of the law for both uh, domestic violence, um, uh, how you, uh, you know, discipline your child, what are the limits. And so we want to do that in a way, one, they then see the police as a facilitative role and, okay, well, I got it before I had an emergency. Mm-hmm. And just on that note, as we deal with, and, and this is a long ongoing process, with all our community, um, whatever the group is. It could be, um, I go down to Stuart Memorial Church on a regular basis. I've gone to the Church of Prophecy of God to meet with the congregation. These are just facets. Uh, I was at the Muslim uh, celebration of Eid uh, last week and before that, the week prior. We wanna be there when there aren't issues to develop relationships and trust and people get to know each other. Then if there is an issue, then we can come together and at least we know each other's names and kind of some background and then handle the issue. I'll give you an example. Dr. Subramanian, who's up at the Hindu Samaj over our most recent issue, um, said, you know, the difference in that response to the burning of that temple was interfaith communities came together, but nobody told them they had to do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody Nobody directed them to do it. They just did it. Well, that's kind of what you want, is you want a response from the community that's not run by somebody else, that works towards the common good, that takes issue with crimes against, one is a crime against all, and nobody you know, was uh, on a you know, platform dictating what they had to do or otherwise, they just did it. I'd like to think in our community, when we can do that, that is the proper response. I will cite Dr. Uh, Chief Brown's comment, which I thought was great, um, who, as I understand, one of his sons was involved with a fatal interaction with a police officer where they were both killed. And he said to the community, come and join us, come and work here. Mm-hmm. Um, if you will then go out to the communities that you're talking about and implement the changes you're seeking to implement. We want to do the same thing in our police service. We want to represent and have people see their own community in our policing community. And that takes, in my view, great courage to set forward and implement that change. It's the old Gandhi expression, right? Be the change you, you wish to see. Are we ahead of the rest of North America on stuff like this? Are we ahead of, and again, it's hard to compare us to the United States, but it just seems that uh, they are quite fearful. They appear to be quite fearful of their police, which 
Well, I think the other difficulty, you know, look at the gun culture. Yeah. Uh, it is very different between Canada and the States. We know we have a higher prol- proliferation of uh, handguns and other weapons appearing, largely because you can go down Ohio to a flea market, get yeah. an automatic weapon. If you're willing to run it across the border, you now have an automatic weapon. Uh, you don't have a license and all the other things, but, I mean, it, it changes the game. But as a, you know... As a standard thing, the prevalence of firearms and the capacity to own them, particularly in the southern states where the laws, in my view, are a little more permissive, means that for most calls, you've got a firearm present. In a sense, and a use of force instructor told me this once, I thought it was very instructive. He says, you know, when you go to a call, do you assume there's a firearm? I'm thinking, well, not really. I mean, he says, yeah, you should, because guess what? You're bringing one. Yeah. So yeah. there's always a gun at your call. Who has control of that firearm is a different discussion. Hmm. Um, for us, we'd like to leave it in the holster. Um, that's the best outcome. If we can de-escalate through speaking to people, alternate measures, if we have to use force, it's less than lethal force. Uh, as you know, our MCERT uh, rollout for the Mobile Crisis Rapid Response Team is exactly that. Mental health care worker. And a police officer. Our whole goal is de-escalation. Our implementation of the conducted energy weapon was so that we had another option because we'd heard it through so many um, inquests. They said, want to have CEWs. Mm-hmm. We agreed. Our board got on board. Uh, we funded it through, uh, you know, a rather innovative strategy. And now our front line has conducted energy weapons. And I got to tell you, and having read, I read all the reports, or I did as a deputy, um, if you point a firearm at somebody, they may not respond. If you spark up a taser, oh, oh okay. Mm. <laughs> it logically doesn't make sense, but that's okay. That is odd, isn't it? Well, uh, people have fear of pain. I get that. Yeah. And it's kind of immediate when you see a spark and you go, I don't want any of that. Uh, that's okay because wow. if it de-escalates and we get a safe resolution, the person to care, it's what we want. So obviously taser is a good thing. Good that we have these. Uh, we just did the report to the board a couple of uh, months ago. So we're seeing increased use, actually more sparking as we call it demonstrate you know hold so the we- hold the cew up and it sparks and you yeah. go, okay um less firing of the probes and of course you have a push taser that you can use as well which is pain compliance it's a little different but the whole premise is de-escalation less and lethal uh, use of options you're not hitting somebody with a baton you're not spraying them with pepper spray it is transient in terms of the effect but you get compliance when it's properly deployed that's what we want. We want somebody to get through the issue safely. I uh, have to ask you one final question. Your view on carding, uh, racial profiling, whatever you want to call it. How do you decipher between that and collecting evidence that you need with good community policing? And you've raised a good point. Uh, we will continue to interact with the community. How we solve crimes, in my view, is largely through information. Information comes from people. You get information from people by talking to them. So we'll have many instances, and I'll tell you one of my concerns with the new collection of information uh, regulation is the public's understanding of where they still have to comply. So, for example, I say to you, Scott, you're under arrest for theft. Mm -hmm. You say, well, you can't card me. I'm not carding you. I'm arresting you. So my concern is escalation of force based on misinformation. uh, Because people think... I, I, you can't touch me. That's correct. Yeah. But for judicial processes, for arrest, I may come up to you because you were a witness in the area and just speak to you. I'm not carding you. I'm just speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Carding, or that, and it's, it's a term that's actually not defined. But if I take your information... It isn't, is it? It's not. 
And it doesn't appear in the new regulation either, you'll notice. Hmm. So they've talked about the collection of information in certain circumstances, prohibitions, and when you can. Mm -hmm. But remember, there are prohibitions and there are times when you can. Mm -hmm. So this is about a 14-page statute. It requires a close reading. I'm hoping that the ministry, we'll do a weekend, but I'm hoping the ministry comes out with what you can and can't do as a public education piece. We're obviously going to comply with the legislation. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. You have a leg- piece of legislation in place. We're getting ready. We've already developed a policy contingent upon. We're still waiting on uh, the formal curriculum from the police college. It's going to be vetted by an oversight committee, and that's by statute. And once that's done, we're getting ready to roll to move it forward. Eric Gert has been with us, a uh, new police chief for Hamilton, of course, replacing Glenn DeCare. Uh, Eric Gert, police chief for Hamilton Police Services. Thank you, Eric, and uh, congratulations again. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.